Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, November 28th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. This week we're heading back to the really great white north, talking about broad white fish. And I'm very pleased to welcome our guests. We've got Dr. Jason Leppi, who's based in Anchorage, Alaska, and he's a fisheries biologist with the Wilderness Society. And we've got Ernest Nagiak, who's our Alaska Native Affairs Specialist based in our Barrow or Ukiavik field office. So very warm welcome to both of you. I've been wanting to cover this fish for a while. Of the Alaska whitefish species, we've covered sheafish twice. We've covered Bering Cisco, covered humpback whitefish. And the broad whitefish is a nice big fish. It's got big shoulders, super important to indigenous folks around the state. Jason, maybe we can kick one off to you in terms of like, how does this species fit in with some of the other whitefish species in Alaska? So this is one of eight whitefish and cisco species. It is the second largest, Inkanu being the, the largest. And then there's pygmy whitefish, also round whitefish, humpback whitefish, and then you have bearing cisco, least cisco, and arctic cisco. As someone who's not up in Alaska, all these whitefishes, when I see them in books, I see these pictures, they all sort of blur together into one shade of white in my imagination. I can't figure out how to distinguish one for another. What separates out the broad whitefish other than maybe its size, both in terms of its appearance and then also its ecological niche? The distinguishing feature of a broad whitefish would be its size. It has a downward facing mouth that's used to forage on benthic invertebrates, uh, midges and snails, other gastropods. And so they're um, typically kind of olive color to brown on the top with a silvery side and a white belly. They look in similar in shape and size, in my opinion, to a sockeye salmon. So they weigh about two to five kilograms, which is somewhere around nine to 11 pounds. And they're typically around upwards of 60 to 70 centimeters in length. So they're a fairly large fish and hence some why they're uh, targeted in such an important subsistence fish. What's the range in Alaska? Like, where are these guys located around the state? Yeah, they're throughout Alaska, but from the Kuskokwim north. And so they also occur in other parts of the world, too. So like Siberia, like Russia, and I think northern Eurasia, Canada. So there's been more research in the Mackenzie River, and there's a big, big population of broadway fish there, so... Ernest, what's some of the local knowledge you guys have about this fish? We call our broad whitefish in our language anachlik. Hmm. Anachlik is uh, our term for whitefish. And then the Lee Cisco and Noakes that we trade with them is called cock duck. And the different kind of whitefish with just a small head, we call those pickle two. And uh, the smaller least is color sock. So there's like Jason mentioned, there's like four or five different species of whitefish. And I don't know all the scientific terms of these whitefish, just our native yeah. language tongue. So you ask the kid around here, 
If they like broad white words, they probably wouldn't know what it is. If, unless you say, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I had that for dinner. Awesome. So we kind of eat our fish depending on the time we catch them. So early in June, when the ice starts retreating from the beach and it's clear enough to set a net, that's when I get my first nets in to try and get broad whitefish because beginning of summer, we go to our fish camps to get the early broad whitefish and we fillet them and make dried fish. We call it pifsi, where we fillet the sides on both sides and leave them connected at the tail and throw them over a meat rack and let them hang for four to five days, depending on the weather. And that's our first taste throughout the year. And then we go back to the fish camps in August and September and set nets in the rivers or the lakes because, you know, the rivers, they get dirty sometimes and we have to find the fish in the little creeks or rivers. And that's when we eat a lot of the boiled fish. So during that time, we cut them up and do a lot of boiling of the fish and eat them that way to uh, be able to live at camp for two or three weeks at a time. We live off the fish and the caribou we catch during that time. And then during the winter time, like right now, we're getting the fish and our people have known to have our frozen foods during the winter i guess it keeps us warm so right now we're having a lot of our broad whitefish as raw frozen meat we or sushi what you want to call it we just take the skin off try the meat off the bones and dip it in seal oil okay. so uh, that's what a lot of people are eating the broad whitefish right now is frozen they taste any different that time of year than when you mentioned kind of now in the winter more? Some of our elders, they notice the taste difference in the river, broad whitefish versus the landlocked lakes in our area where people set nets in the lakes and the elders prefer those ones because they taste more buttery or <laughs> they have a different taste in the rivers, I think. Awesome. When you're drying the fish on those racks, you say you got to leave it out for four or five days. Now, I, I know like in the summertime and stuff up in Alaska, you can get bugs and flies and things like that. Have those not come out yet or how would you keep those away? Oh, my aunt and them, they soak them or rinse them in a little bit of salt water and kind of keeps bugs away from them and if there's any bugs on them or if they laid any eggs or maggot eggs on them, we just rinse them off. And that's why we uh, keep an eye on it, check them daily. And sometimes if it's rainy weather, we just hang them up inside the house. You know, if the weather's not cooperating, that's what people do to make their dry fish. You guys trade anything else other than fish? You ever get broad white fish in return for something else that you've harvested? Yeah, we're on top of Alaska, so we're a whaling community. We hunt bowhead whales. The inland people near the rivers, they usually come up and hunt with us. We had brought some the bowhead whale with the neighboring village so they could have a Thanksgiving and Christmas feast. And in return, they gave us a gunny sack of um, broad whitefish. So awesome. it's kind of like we... We barter and trade 
for a certain fish from Nooksit where they got the least cisco. At Kasuk, they have the smaller, um, broad whitefish, but the bare area where we mostly depend on the broad whitefish for our main fish source. Awesome. What's the current exchange rate for bowhead <laughs> whale to gunny sacks of broad whitefish? How much do you got to trade over to get that? Oh, we had gave them about uh, 20 so sacks of uh, whale, and then they gave us two sacks of fish. So they're still fishing right now. So mm-hmm. and they bring some as they travel to the town. And also our local tribal government is kind of like a food bank, but it's a native food bank with the traditional animals that are harvested in our area to help alleviate the food shortages in our rural towns because sometimes the planes don't come and sometimes the grocery stores are bare. So we depend on a lot of our fish and subsistence foods. Got some high-priced food items I've seen in some of the stores around the state. Yeah, real high prices. Ernest, do you have a earliest first memory of this fish or just something that really stands out that you love about the species or eating it or anything like that? Uh, yeah, my early memory of it is eating the frozen eyeballs. Oh, that's what uh, our parents, as they're cutting, taking the frozen sushi off, they would give us a pop the eyeball and give us a taste as they're cutting. And once they're done, they would have them all cut up and have a little seal oil on the side. So it seems like the the eyeballs are really nutritious part of yeah. the fish, right? And they got that little like lens in there. We just recently had our native relations training with the Fish and Wildlife Service a couple of weeks ago and a lady had brought in frozen fish so she had just cut it up and served it as is and whoever tried it took the skin off and ate it all up and the only pieces that were last was the eyeballs and that's what that? I had. And- okay. Brought back memories of my childhood. I don't know nothing about the nutritional value like Katrina's getting at, but I'm just curious how those things taste. I mean, I are they do they taste good? What what do fish eyes taste like? Taste like sushi. <laughs> Hard to explain what white fish tastes like, but it, we dip it in our seal oil that's rendered blubber. That's like a condiment on the side, like our soy sauce up north. But that's a delicacy to go along with frozen raw fish, dipping it in seal oil. That's a good combo. We talked to somebody out from the Katsabue area last year, and they mentioned the seal oil and how that really helps keep you warm feeling in the winter. I haven't tried that yet, but it sounds good. In trying to do my due diligence and do research and give you guys the respect that you deserve, I wanted to try to make sure that I actually researched this fish before we came on here. But I was having a real tough time finding any information about the broad whitefish. I mean, there was some here and there, but compared to some of the other species we covered, it was a challenge. I'm curious why there's such a lack of information out there and maybe what's being done to learn more about them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the full reason why there's a lack of information, but they're kind of an elusive species. They move around a lot, sometimes, you know, a thousand kilometers between like foraging and spawning areas. They inhabit rivers that are sometimes silty, so you can't see the 
schools of fish like you can in other clear creeks. And they're not really commercially harvested. Um, while they're very important, valuable subsistence fish, the commercial harvests have been minimal in areas across the state. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that make them hard to study. I mean, fish just in general, hard to track their movement. Can't put GPS collars on fish like you can caribou or something. So fish are really hard to understand when they're moving across the landscape. If you were to follow this fish for the course of its life and then summarize kind of the highlights in like a riveting 30 seconds, say you're talking to a neighbor or somebody, what would that look like? Yeah, I can tell you about um, what I know from the Colville River um, watershed. They start coming into the Colville like late June, early July, and then the run continues all the way into October, potentially even later. So these fish go to a variety of spots upstream anywhere from 10-ish kilometers to potentially over like 200 kilometers up the river. And as the water temperature drops down to around zero degrees, which typically occurs around freeze-up, they uh, broadcast spawn their eggs, which are negatively buoyant. And the male will fertilize them as the eggs fall. They go into crevices between gravel substrate, and then they incubate over the winter. In the springtime, the larvae emerge and it coincides with spring breakup. And so the larvae are evicted passively down to a variety of habitats. By looking at otolith microchemistry in adults, we were able to look at different life histories. And it appears that some individuals are evicted to marine environments pretty quickly, and others spend up to two, four years in freshwater. And so it varies quite a bit. And it probably has to do with the habitat and their spawning location. There's still a, a bunch of unknowns. So the larvae go down, they grow, they get big. And usually they're rearing in like the delta. The Cobalt Delta is the largest delta in Arctic Alaska. And they get big, feed out to the delta in near short environments. And then eventually they start to make bigger movements. And so they move out into like streams and lakes in the central Beaufort Sea region. And they get big until about age eight or 10. And then they start to do their spawning migration. So they're idioparous, so they spawn multiple times throughout their life. And they can live upwards of the oldest fish that we found was 38 years. So Okay, so similar to like a she fish or a canoe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So then they start making their migrations back to their spawning location and then they're dispersing in the summer months. They tend to overwinter in marine brackish environments or like deep lakes or deep parts of rivers. Awesome. Thank you. Now, I've never been on the Colville, but I've seen some of those Alaska rivers, and it, they seem like they might be challenging to raft just on their own, let alone to be doing research. So I'm curious, maybe you could talk a little bit about what that was like, what your experience was like on the river, as well as the information you're collecting and uh, contributing to. Yeah, it's very braided, sinuous, deep, 30 feet deep in, oh, wow. in holes, and also could be super shallow. So the substrate varies from big cobbles up in the headwaters to kind of silt and sand down lower. So it's a very diverse river. Hmm. I guess initially our research was based out of Nuiqsik, which is near the delta of the Kovals, the large river that drains from the Brooks Range and it drains to the north towards a large delta. And on that kind of by the Niglik Channel is it's just like a braid of the delta. That's where Nuiqsik is. If you're looking at the top of Alaska between Utagavik and Prudhoe Bay, it's kind of like right in the middle, center of the Beaufort Sea up the coast. And then, so we started out doing kind of initial sampling based out of Nuiqsik, working with the native village of Nuiqsik Tribal Council. 
and we would motor upriver to set nets and sample fish and also later on radio tag fish. The sampling was more focused on seeing the river firsthand and collecting surveys, looking at habitat surveys, and just kind of getting a greater appreciation of the river. So it's a large river, but it also has lots of braids. And being able to see it from different perspectives, I think was really helpful. Later on, our floating and sampling was to collect water samples to measure for isotopes. So the research was kind of a variety of things. So looking at their foraging ecology from stable isotopes, we also looked at their movement patterns towards spawning areas. And then we were doing some otolith microchemistry to try to understand lifelong habitat patterns. We're kind of in fall, going into winter, winter, I would say here in Alaska at this point. You know, what, what are these fish doing this time of year? Could you just tell us a little bit about what you know from where you're at and kind of what these fish are doing right now? So they're getting broad whitefish as we speak under the ice. Right now, when the rivers freeze up, that's when um, local community members go to the rivers and set fish nets under the ice. So they uh, chop holes about four or five in a line and use long hooks to set a net in the, under the ice with the rope and hook the string under and they pull the net through. So they're doing that right now that for the past month, they've been setting nets in the ice and the community in Barrow, they're hunting for the elders and the less fortunate people to help accommodate our food security in the North Slope. So they're getting about 90 to 100 fish a day right now with three nets, 100-foot nets, about four or five feet deep with four to five-inch mesh. That's awesome. Have you, have you seen any changes over time with the fishing or anything like that? Oh, um, our waters are getting... A little bit more dirtier because the water's rising and it's a lot more river flow. So we use a lot of the lakes next to the river. But I also notice pike coming up far north in our rivers. We're getting some pike in our nets. So hopefully they don't diminish our broad whitefish numbers. But also sometimes if a net is in for a day too long or half a day too long sometimes the fish get worms burrowed into them and when we check them sometimes uh, we get worms crawling out if there's not too many we just take them off and take the fish but yeah some in like in the colville or near our noxid area they notice some white fish are getting mold or some kind of different kind of skin irritations on the side of them but something fairly new and they're working with our boar wildlife and trying to get samples and studies on them because yeah. you know like jason mentioned there's not much research or studies on the broad whitefish even though it's huge and important for the north slope when you're doing this research i'm curious what kind of role alaska native people play in either actually doing the research alongside you or providing the information on where to start looking into things so the role of the Native Village in Nuiksik, like in addition to helping push to have more studies done, the Native Village and specifically fishermen there were very instrumental in like helping identify locations to target fish, guiding us up to locations and making sure that we were successful. But also the fishermen 
in Nuiqsic are very knowledgeable of conditions, where to target fish, when to go, how to do it safely. They just have a wealth of knowledge. It's really advantageous to form these partnerships early on. Very helpful, for sure. What are some of the kind of remaining questions you guys have about this fish that haven't been answered yet or coming up that need to be answered? There's a lot in my mind, but uh, one of the main ones that we're working towards right now, so we did some initial telemetry research where we implanted radio transmitters into pre-spawn broadwhite fish in the lower river, and then we tracked them upstream in the fall. And we were able to relocate most of our individuals, but not all of them. And what we thought would occur, at least I thought would occur, was that we would find like a more centralized area for a spawning location. And what we found was that the individuals were scattered over quite a large distance. That may support this multiple life history evidence that we found through microchemistry. But one of the major things is, I guess, refining that spawning area or identifying multiple spawning areas in the Colville. We were collecting water samples throughout the upper Colville and measuring the strontium ratios in the water samples. And we're hoping to try to understand through odorless microchemistry and water chemistry where the natal areas are (laughs) for various fish. So I think that's a really important thing. So the Colville is the largest river in Arctic Alaska. And so there's potential that it's a major spawning location for these fish. And those guys have pretty distinct, I mean, they got like, what, the Susitna, the Yukon, and the Casco, I think, for bearing. But yeah, figuring out those spawning areas seems like quite a task and kind of a combo of, yeah, everyone's knowledge. That's cool. Ernest, we've just had Thanksgiving. So what are the Thanksgiving traditions that you guys have up there in the extreme northern part of the country? Yeah, considering where our location is and we have to share our food with others to be able to survive in this rural, harsh environment, cold environment with just one plane a day comes in to bring people in and out, only way in and out. We harvest our whale, which is our main food source, so we able to celebrate the gift of the whale, but we also share it with our community, not just our community, our neighboring community, Atkasuk, Anuktuvuk Pass, which is in the Brooks Range, our whole North Slope. In return, we got some broad whitefish from our neighboring village, Atkasuk. We gave them share a whale because we have celebrations and the community wants to get together. So we give a lot of our whale and Thanksgiving and Christmas to the communities who want to come and get a share. So we start off with waterfowl soup or caribou soup. And then the rest is frozen goods from frozen whale to frozen whale meat and a frozen flipper. But after that, they close off the celebration with frozen broad whitefish or other least cisco fish. And they have a dance celebration after, and that's a main winter celebrations. And that's just also how we gather and trade and share our food together. Is the dance indoors or outdoors? Oh, it's outdoors by the Thanksgiving and Christmas. Our sunlight is gone, so the sun doesn't rise again until January 23 or so. So we use 
lot of our Eskimo song and dance to. And our winter games, our native Youth Olympics, they have Christmas games and we have week-long get-together of community and we have traditional games and it's just ways for us to stay together as a community and get together during the cold winter months. We call them Christmas games where it's week-long celebration of strength and endurance games. What are some examples? They do mostly the one foot and two foot high kick and yeah, I've seen that. they have That's foot cool. races and they have a paper pass relay and they also have scavenger hunt where everybody goes in the middle of the floor and runs into the crowd and gets a $20 bill or something. It's just <laughs> That's awesome. well, some fun things to do for leading into the new year. Exciting times, you know, we're just trying to get by this far north and that's through fishing and hunting and it's just our way of life. Super cool. It is good to have Jason and more biologists and researchers uh, looking into this broad whitefish because like you said, it's really important for us northern people because that's our main fish source for the people of the Arctic. And with the warming waters and more fish species and with new sickness coming around with the fish, it's good to have people looking into it already. So thank you, Jason. And Thank you, Fish and Wildlife Service. Awesome. Well, this has been a, a great conversation about this very cool fish, and we hope folks get out and enjoy all the fish and get to know all the whitefish. We're going to keep covering whitefish in this series. So, yeah, <laughs> great talking with y'all. Don't laugh, guy. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 